The following is a conversation with Dr. Nicholas Weaver. He is currently a lecturer at UC Berkeley in the Department of Computer Science. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Nicholas Weaver and his work, wait until the end of this episode or check the notes in the description. Enjoy. Nicholas Weaver, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. For the audience, for context, you did your bachelor's in science at UC Berkeley, and then you did your PhD as well at UC Berkeley. Although entertainingly, it is a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science and Astrophysics. That's right. Uh, astrophysics and computer science are typically not uh, fields of art. So maybe we'll start there. Uh, how did you make that decision and what was that like? Well, I washed out of physics and at Berkeley, the Letters and Science College, which includes physics and computer science and astrophysics and all of those, is technically only gives bachelors of art. So I have a bachelor of art in computer science um, and I did computer science because it was easy and fun. And then I went on and did grad school in the uh, late 90s. And this was the first dot-com bubble. And during that time, I basically sat on the sidelines in my ivory tower, watched a lot of people make a lot of money on a lot of stupid ideas, including things like delivering pet food with no shipping. And my favorite has to be my pack of lifesavers for 59 cents that I got delivered for free from Webvan. It's actually amazing how many of the modern Ubers and the like are basically recapitulating those same mistakes from 1997. So, I mean, that that's so fascinating to, to talk about because you're talking about pets.com and then the lifesavers. Uh, this is a candy, right? So this is yep. a candy was uh, a, a, you said delivered like, through web van, grocery delivery service, no delivery charge. Right. And that's funny because it's 2021. And if I want a bagel with a little bit of cream cheese on it, I can get that delivered with Uber Eats. So... Uh, and both seem like uh, kind of uh, silly business models. That doesn't seem very practical. Um, so what was that like? Uh, you, you're at a, a very prestigious university. You're studying computer science. Um, you're, you're, doing, you're, you're in graduate school, but you're watching the dot-com bubble. That must have been both painful and exhilarating. I mean, I, I, what was that Mostly like? Mostly exhilarating because I'm not money motivated. Once I have enough, I don't care anymore. My, my parents taught me this well. And so this means I can be kind of dispassionate. Uh, a lot of people were making money. A lot of people were losing money. And uh, I could basically sit back with uh, popcorn when things were going up, because when it was going up, it was just amusing. And everything was going up. I mean, the dot-com bubble was a period of just absolutely incredible growth. What was the point in your mind where it became clear that this was, you know, a manic episode in the stock market. This was a real, you know, uh, exuberance. Uh, when you had things like, oh God, there were several really lousy e-commerce companies that went IPO um, that were just so grossly incompetent. Like there was one where we basically took advantage as students of their sign up. Uh, so like the first time you sign up, you get a hundred dollars credit. So like my office mate signed up in his name, his sister's name, his mother's <laughs> name, his father's name. 
And their uh, shipping control was so bad that half the time you get two of whatever you ordered. So I got a couple of nice putters out of them. What was your field of interest at the time in computer science? Uh, mostly computer architecture, how computers are made, how we can make them better. And I still do some of that, although these days I focus more on security. So what happened in 2001 is a massive computer worm hit. That is a malicious program that spread worldwide in 13 hours. And that got me interested in, can you do faster? Because that changes the implications of how you do defense. And so I started working in computer security. And when I graduated in 2003, I basically switched focus to be pri primarily security. And at that time, there was another bubble forming, and this one was in the housing market. And so in 2004, I now have a real salary. What do you do when you finally have a real salary? You buy a house. But the house prices in the Bay Area were simply ludicrous. So I did basically a number-based analysis. So I looked at the cost of buying all in interest, property tax, maintenance estimates, subtract off the tax savings. Um, and that should be less than rent. That your monthly cost for buying a house should be more than rent. That's fine. It's that your monthly lost money from buying a house should be less than rent. And this was clearly not the case back then. So the apartment we were in was charging 1300 bucks a month and they would sell it to us as a condo, as is, where is, for $400,000. And that just made no sense at all. You'd have to have like significant rent increases every year for a decade before it would even break even. So I stayed out. And this led me to a personal mental insight. I am a believer in the efficiently inefficient market hypothesis. So the efficient market hypothesis is that the market reflects the actual price based on the knowledge of the investors. The efficiently inefficient market hypothesis adds a little bit more to it. The price represents the knowledge and beliefs of the active market participants, those who are actively buying and selling. It does not include the beliefs of those who are just relaxing on the sidelines going, this is loony, go off and do your own. And the big difference in this way of thought is the efficient market hypothesis doesn't allow for bubbles. The efficiently inefficient market hypothesis allows bubbles to happen all the time because it's just those who are actually believing in the price. And so you get beanie babies, you get loony IPOs, and you get all this type of stuff. And I acted on it and did not buy a house until 2010 when the price collapsed. And uh, I knew I couldn't negotiate the price down anymore when I did the math and the bank on the foreclosure was recovering 50.1 cents on the dollar. Um, so, the, 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 I mean, this is super fascinating. The, the topic of efficient markets is, is, is a wonderfully interesting one. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Eugene Fama and, and Robert Schiller, uh, joint Nobel laureates in 2013, who uh, talk uh, um, relentlessly about, about the very fascinating aspects of bubbles and whether or not they exist. So 
uh, what you were what you observed in two thousand four was this sort of irrational exuberance, as Schiller would would describe around around housing that it can only go up, and the way you said it is that uh, making money on rent would be completely in it would not be feasible uh, where you were looking to to uh, purchase a house uh, or a condo. And and this is a way to balance out that you should be able to buy a house, rent it out and be cash flow negative, but not losing money. Because unless the market truly collapses, your payments to principal, you get back when you sell the house. So buying a house should be a positive sum enterprise. But if the cash flow doesn't balance, you know that something's out of whack and either I was delusional or the market was delusional. And in that case, it was the uh, market. So how has your perspective on, I mean, markets changed? Do you think that markets are fundamentally a psychological reflection of the apes that we are? Is that where your inefficiently efficient market outlook you know, coalesces towards? Uh, that it's, it's not really that people are rationally betting based on information in, in a way to optimize for profit, but that people have this ape-like mind where it's excitement, it's buying into the dream, it's perpetuating that dream, and then pushing others to get in on it. I think there's a lot of the latter, that there's a lot of excitement and manias. There's a lot of belief that, um, that hopium is a powerful drug. And so what is hopium uh, for the audience that might not be on, uh, on Twitter or familiar with uh, some of these terms? So hopium is just slang for, oh, it's going to be better. I'm going to believe. And it's just belief. And belief is a powerful motivator and a powerful drug. The other issue that comes into play is, I forget which economist has this saying, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And that means that even if there is a bubble, and even if you're certain, and even if you're 100% right, the only safe thing to do is just stay out of it. Um, because uh, shorting, which we'll talk about in a, in a bit, is a zero-sum operation. And I also make a very important distinction between positive-sum and zero-sum. And positive-sum things I'll put my money into. A zero-sum thing I will never touch, because in zero-sum, Every dollar one is taken from somebody else, and that's called a poker game or the racetrack. And the zero-sum aspect of your work is something very recent and interesting that you've been, you've been writing about, and we're going to cover a lot of that. I want to just touch on uh, for, you know, kind of the layperson. In your mind, what is a bubble fundamentally? What makes it happen, and why do they pop? Because we hear the term bubble all the time, and everyone has their own kind of definition or outlook on that. My definition is a deviation in the price of a traded asset that is significantly divorced from the fundamental income generation possibilities of that asset. So it's something that, say, if something gives you a buck a month, 12 bucks a year, a hundred bucks, yeah, I'll buy that. That's a 10% return on investment. 200 bucks, yeah, okay, that's getting a pricey. 2,000 bucks, no way in hell, that doesn't make sense. $20,000, that makes it even less sense. And so whenever you have these distortions, 
it's just psychological. It's often a indication of a bubble though, is the belief that it doesn't matter how much income you can make off of something, but only how much somebody else will buy it for. So when the Beanie Babies went crazy and made up a notional market value in the billions of dollars, people didn't say that, oh, Sunray the Manta is inherently going to give me 10 bucks a month. They go, Sunray the Manta is going to get me X dollars when some other sucker pays more for it than I get. And that is a key observation. Whenever you see that happening as the mindset, assume it's a bubble unless uh, proven otherwise, because this is specifically divorcing the asset from its underlying ability to generate income. The, the, the critical point you're making there is that there's a difference between people buying something that's productive, that's giving them a regular return, and that return is proportional to the amount that they're investing. So they're getting a healthy uh, percentage return. So for example, 10% per year is a pretty rational uh, thing to put your money into as an example, but 0.01% per year would be rather irrational. Um, and yes. if it's 100% return per year, well, then there's definitely a red flag there or some risk that you're not accounting for. Yes. Um, now for the audience that, that might not have heard about Beanie Babies, what you just showed me on camera here, and this is an audio podcast, you showed me a little plushy toy, what I would guess is about a $10 value, and it's a little manta ray, it's a very cute little plushy, and that is what a Beanie Baby is, correct? They're just little plushies, right. and, and, and what happened there? So back in the late 90s, during the dot-com boom, there were other bubbles forming. So there were these uh, cute little plush toys called Beanie Babies that were sold for eight bucks, six bucks kind of range. And on the secondary market, uh, they became wildly expensive. You had some be Beanie Babies going for thousands of dollars. You had all these manias going on, but the value of that particular princess looking bear or whatever only rested on what the next person would pay for it. And and that and that is where bubbles go out of control. It's where you're buying something because you just genuinely think someone else will buy it from you at a much greater price in a very short amount of time. That the time horizon for your expectations get narrower and narrower uh, as the bubble gets more intense. And critically, the price justification depends always on there being somebody else who's willing to spend more. And this has occurred for half a millennia. So when people speak of tulip mania, that's what they're speaking of, is that the notion that this particular rare tulip bulb would be worth so much money, not because the tulip is pretty, not because you can't turn one tulip bulb into 10,000 tulip bulbs, but solely because somebody else will pay X plus a little more tomorrow for it. Right. And the only reason they're going to spend X plus a little more tomorrow is they think somebody else is going to spend X plus even more on the same tulip bulb the day after. And eventually one of the buyers is going to be catastrophically wrong. And in, in crypto terms, uh, and I think this is also in the broader market, we say that they're left holding the bag. What they have is something that 
uh, has a very small, maybe what we could call intrinsic value. I think that word is a very gray area. It's a difficult word, but it doesn't have a lot of productive utility for the person holding it. And the real utility that the person saw from this thing was that they could find the next person to buy it at a greater price. That greater fool isn't there. That's the issue. Yes. And greater fool problems get even worse when you deal with a thing that is a zero sum asset. So a positive sum asset is like the stock market. So you buy a stock or better yet, buy an index fund. You hold on to it for a long time and then sell it on. During that time, you gained money from dividends, you gained money from share buybacks, and all that money flows in. So your value of that index fund is your return on that index fund is not just based on what somebody else will buy up from you for five years from now, but in the meantime, the free income flow. A zero-sum asset is different. A zero-sum asset just sits there. If you hold it, it does nothing. It just sits there like a cute little beanie baby on a shelf. If I buy a zero-sum asset for $10 and sell it later for $100, yes, I gained $90. But that gain is exactly offset by the loss of $90 and $10 from the person who bought it from me. So the first person gained $10, I gained $90, the third person is down 100, and this sums out to zero. And so in a zero-sum game, you aren't really investing. My belief is an investment needs to gain a positive return absent somebody else buying it later on. Uh, a zero-sum instead is gambling. And we actually have a lot of examples of zero-sum behavior in the real world. So there's two classic examples, the racetrack and a poker game. So a poker game is entirely a zero-sum operation. You have all the people around the table. Everybody puts in so many chips. One person gets them all back out. Right. And the racetrack is the similar thing. It's using a system of what's known as paramutual gambling. So in paramutual gambling, I bet on horse A, you bet on horse B, somebody else bets on horse C, all the bets are put in a pool and whoever wins, wins. And so if a lot of people bet on horse A and horse A wins, everybody only gets a little because there were a lot of gamblers. But if horse B, the long shot wins, you're golden. Um, or, and you were the one who selected it, you get a lot. But this is key. There was no investment. This was just gambling. And so when you have a zero-sum operation, it is best to think of it as a gambling operation rather than an uh, investment. And one of the problems is, is we have been lied to by Wall Street into believing certain zero-sum things are actually investments. And before we go into that, when you talk about a poker game, I think 99% of people will agree with you. It's so obviously, so clearly zero-sum. How can two people sit at a poker table and both leave millionaires? They right? can't. It's impossible. But both people sitting down at the poker table 
think they are going to leave millionaires. And that is the thing that you really look for in a zero-sum transaction to know if it's problematic or not. So there are real-world zero-sum operations that are quite productive. Insurance. I don't expect to crash my car. I expect to lose money on my insurance policy. But if I crash my car, the insurance policy pays out and compensates for the loss because my function of damage is nonlinear. Losing a buck, who cares? Losing 10,000 bucks is an issue. So if there's a one in 50,000 chance of losing $10,000, I might very well spend a dollar to insure against that. And certain stock market things can be this insurance. So if you're, say, a farmer, and you've got this huge crop of soybeans going in, you might very well want to uh, use some soybean futures as a hedge, that is an insurance policy against things going down. Similarly, if you're an airline, you might want to use uh, fuel futures as a hedge. So if gas prices go through the rough, you can keep flying because, yeah, you're paying more for gas, but you prepaid for it effectively and you insure it against that. However, if your airline consistently makes money on the fuel futures, you aren't an airline, you're a gambling operation which just happens to fly planes around. And that's the key. If both parties in the zero-sum transaction expect to make a profit, one of them is wrong. So we're, we're, you know, we started with the poker analogy, and then we have this other analogy, which is interesting about uh, the horse race. All of the money that you're betting for or against various horses is only coming from other people. So fundamentally, the difference there is that no productive assets are, are, are no money injection is coming from non-speculative uh, areas. Is, is that how yes, you would? That's the key distinction, is that with a positive sum investment like the stock market, You've got injection of money from outside the people trading back and forth. But in the horse race, you don't. In the poker game, you don't. In the futures market, you don't. And this is why I believe that I'm quite contemptuous of Wall Street, uh, that Robinhood, for example, trying to get people to trade on a short time scale. Short time scale is zero sum getting people to trade futures. Futures are provably zero sum. And in fact, futures are best described as paramutual gambling on whether the number go up or not associated with a stock. If it goes up, one party wins. If it goes down, the other party wins. And the net gain is zero. And the only real winner in this scheme is the house. So in the horse race, Conceptually, it's zero sum. We all put our money in, we see which horse wins, and oh my God, bad name, whatever, won. But the track takes its cut. So it turns from a zero sum game into a provably negative sum game that you are now gambling in a way where you know for every dollar won, $1.01 was lost. And the track got a penny. And this is where the expression, the house always wins, is very appropriate because the house has a rake. And in a poker table, the house takes a little bit from the pot 
every time a bet is being made. This is what you're saying uh, fundamentally makes it from a, a, a zero-sum game where there's an equilibrium to a negative-sum game where money is actually being pulled out of, of these bets. Yes, and we see this all the time in the greater stock market. So short-term stock market trading is zero-sum because you don't have time for the dividends to come in. Options are always zero-sum. And we're taught that those are investments. And they're not. They're gambling. And the thing is with the cryptocurrency space is it's quite amusing because for the most part, they really only seem intent on recapitulating half a millennia of financial failures. So if the stock market comes up with the idea of zero-sum trading is an investment um, as a bad idea, well, cryptocurrency is going to do that and hypercharge it on crystal meth. Right, and then claim that it's actually a brilliant new innovation. That, that's, right. that's, uh, that's where things go from uh, just a bad idea to a bubble of, of pretty uh, spectacularly destructive proportions. Um, you know, going back for a second, so we're talking about zero-sum games. One thing you brought up, which I think is fascinating, is the concept of insurance. This is where you're essentially betting against yourself. You're saying, if something bad were to happen for me, for example, my car uh, gets into an accident, you know, or I get hurt in some way, right? Or the industry I work for, uh, you know, something bad happens, then I get a payout. And on average, when you look at insurance, the only way insurance companies can work, just like in a poker table, they have to take a cut. So when you're betting against yourself, most of the time you don't win any money. Very rarely, something bad happens, you get a payout. On average, you still lose. But this isn't the same as the horse betting and as the poker table. There's still some value being added to the network. Um, and there was a debate about this, about whether insurance is in fact a negative sum game or whether it's a net positive to the world. How can you articulate this best, that insurance isn't the same as gambling and betting? Because you expect to lose. That's the big distinction that if two people get together and both of them expect to win at a zero-sum game, one is lying to themselves and they're gambling. If two people get together and one expects a negative outcome, that is, I know on average I'm going to lose a dollar, but I'm losing a dollar so that I know I will not lose $10,000 because I have a nonlinear um, response cost. That is insurance, and that is what makes it productive. What makes it productive is knowing I'm going to lose, hoping I'm going to lose, actually, because I don't want to get in a car wreck. But this way, I know that the tail risk, the very slim probability of something bad happening is no longer my concern. And this is where, for example, you know, a healthy approach to the purchasing of goods is exemplified with things like sneakers or with cars, because people know that when you buy a car, it's not going to be worth more next year. That's a pretty universally accepted truth. However, when we look at these bubbles, often, and this is something that Schiller des describes in, in his book, Irrational Exuberance, we hear people say, I'm buying it at this price and it can only go up. So the expectation is that the value is going to be higher in the future. Yes, and that's the big distinction between investments and gambling 
and between bubbles and not. Bubbles, it's you expect it to be higher in the future because somebody else will pay more for it. Okay, so just jumping around here, um, you're talking a lot about finance, about zero-sum games, but if we, if we go back, how did your life get so entangled with these speculative assets that are often wrapped in technology? I mean, how how did you end up going down this this rabbit hole? What 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 to you is is the is the big fascination? So back in 2013, Bitcoin was just starting to get on the scene. And there were bad guys breaking into computers to steal resources to mine Bitcoin. And so myself and some other security researchers, we started looking into this. And I very quickly realized the space was totally loony. I believe the technical term for the cryptocurrency space circa 2013 was uh, bat guano insane. It was amusingly ludicrous. So these things obviously couldn't work as currency because they had, they were fundamentally incompatible with modern finance and they still are, but there was this speculative interest and you had other amusing stories like 10% of all Bitcoin in 2013 ended up in a Ponzi scheme run by an anonymous guy calling himself Pirate at 40. Yes, and, and we, uh, I know quite a bit about this, and it's, it's fascinating. He was a serial Ponzi schemer. Um, and so, um, so you, you were turned uh, to crypto, to Bitcoin specifically in 2013, because you're, you're coming at it from a security perspective, and this is a security vulnerability. So your, your, first, your first glance into Bitcoin isn't maybe the more uh, naive and optimistic perspective. It's, it's sort of the, the, the net costs on society. That's the first thing you see. It's more complex. So what happens when somebody looks at the cryptocurrency space is one of two things happen. Either, for the most part, either they go, this is completely bananas, bye-bye, and ignore it for years, or they become believers because only the believers have the business model that allows them to follow it. I'm an exception. As an academic, I could follow the space professionally, but skeptically, because my business model is I mine the comedy gold out of it, and I turn it into academic papers and research papers and also things for a general audience. And this made it unique that I, I got into the cryptocurrency space back in 2013 with a skeptical eye and was able to keep watching it since then because there kept being events that I could turn to my personal profit, my personal profit being papers that pad my CV. So this is an incredibly important point that you just mentioned, which is that there are two uh, types of people. The people that believe they're going to get financially wealthy from participating and the people that don't buy into it and therefore have no dog in the race, so to speak. They're not going to profit from it. They're not going to see anything there. And so um, like my friends who aren't involved, but who hear about it, they just kind of, you know, they just don't pay attention. And you are in an interesting point where you have that academic freedom to observe something, not to participate 
and then of course point and and, and mock and laugh and then make a a presentation that a a room of computer scientists could could uh, could giggle uh, with you about. So this asymmetry, this 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 uh, the, the the fact that this space has only or predominantly people that think they're going to benefit from it financially. How does it affect the academic integrity and the intellectual honesty? Um, it has huge effects on it. That um, that the problem is is most of the people in the cryptocurrency space are doing what in the stock market they'd call talking their own book. So they are trying to hype up a asset that they will directly benefit from if it gets hyped up because they can sell it for more. Some of the time, it's because they actually believe it. Some of the time, it's because they know they'll benefit from it. And it's really hard to tell the difference between those who are fooling themselves and those who are just intent on fooling others. Um, it used to be easier. In the early days of cryptocurrency, it was easy. Don't trust anybody who doesn't already have a felony conviction. <laughs> okay. Speaking in particular of Roger Ver, who was big in the early days of uh, Bitcoin and uh, a federal felon for shipping explosives through the mail. Absolutely. And and he he represented a a true, you know, he was a diehard 100% uh, ideologically uh, aligned believer. He, um, to, to his own detriment, some would say, um, especially in the last uh, l- last few years. Um, but the point you're making there is that if, if, if the person isn't ideologically driven, then the financial uh, aspect corrupts anyone and everyone. Yes. And it's a real problem when I, there are people I know and respected who um seeing the siren song of massive amounts of money are building these castles on foundations of sand that they don't understand that what they're doing is building a gambling house because the assets they're trading have no intrinsic value and so building a decentralized exchange to more efficiently trade um whatever's Shiba Inu tokens doesn't actually change the calculation that the real utility value of the system is zero. And that concludes part one of my interview with Dr. Nicholas Weaver. In part two, we discuss the technical aspects of blockchain, ICO, NFTs, and whether or not there are any redeemable qualities of this very overhyped technology. If you'd like to get to know more about Dr. Nicholas Weaver's work, he has recommended that you check out his blog at lawfareblog.com backslash contributors backslash N Weaver. That's N-W-E-A-V-E-R. You can also follow him on Twitter where he is at N-C Weaver. That's at N-C-W-E-A-V-E-R. You can also check out a lot of his works by simply Googling him and uh, visiting the Berkeley EECS website where you can find uh, many of his publications as well as on YouTube where you can find his excellent videos on blockchain and why he recommends we should burn it with fire. As always, for all information, please check the notes in the description.